I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Under the Radar. Special guest, Mark Thomas. Mark Thomas. The Dead Dad Society. Me and you. <laughs> um, Indeed, this is our special club. We that actually, if, you, if you're a performer and you're of a certain age, then you get to do a show about your dead dad. Which is unfortunate. I know, but happens. it's, yeah, yeah. But, like, because that's the thing, like, we're similar in that sense. Well, two things. One is we started off pretty much the exact same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And weirdly, I remember um, you used to storm the comedy store way before I could. I was so jealous. I think the store was, I, I mean, the thing about the comedy store, when I started performing in it, I regarded it as, as a, rightly or wrongly, I think I regarded it as as the gig. Yeah. The gig that I, I wanted to do. This was the gig that I had to do. I had to do well there. Uh, because it had so much history to it. And I yeah. also loved the room. And I loved the fact that... The, I really loved that sense of the late shows. You know, when you were just kind of like... You'd do two shows in an evening. And you'd have that late show kicking off at midnight. Uh, and you weren't quite sure how... That Friday late show was a bugger. Yeah. And you weren't quite sure how it was going to go. And I liked... The, the danger and the, the asp, you know, all of that to it. And if you flew on one of those nights, they were great. Well, I only ever saw you fly. That's very kind nights. of you. That's very selective memory. <laughs> I mean, no, I've done, you know, I'm, I remember doing, um, there's a guy called Charles Fleischer. Do you remember him? He yeah. was Roger Rabbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the voice of Roger Rabbit. And he came in, and no one else was working the room at that stage in the in the UK. So he came over, and he could work the room in this kind of sub Robin Williams way. So he could he would have all his shtick, and he would put it together according to what he saw in the audience. So it'd yeah. be sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, but no one else was doing that, and it looked really amazing. What he'd do is he'd go on. They would always put him on third. They used to have three acts in the first half. Uh, before before Don Ward and the comedy store went, we could make more money by just having two. But they used to have three acts in the first half. And he used to go on to finish that first half. So he was going on stage around about quarter to one in the morning. Right? So he would go on... He would completely storm it. He wouldn't do his 20 minutes. He would do his 45 minutes. He would come off stage, you know, having encored, having drained the room of energy. Yeah. It's half past one in the morning before they've hit the interval. By the time they get back, it's five to two. That last act is going on stage around about half past two in the morning. If you're that last act going on at half past two, and the first time I followed him going on in that late spot, oh, man, you could hear my fingernails falling down really? the, the chalkboard of, you know, that those awful kind yeah. of just moments. energy is gone just because the, the energy's gone yeah. and I was really determined the week after I was there two weeks later and I was really determined that I was going to and so I was really kind of pumped myself up pumped myself up and then just kind of exploded uh, and encored and I, I was I was one of those moments where you just go I'm walking home I don't need a cab because <laughs> <laughs> like my memory of you then is because uh, people talk about like you know your opening line should be a real kind of 
Big one. And wasn't yours always, what are people talking about at <laughs> opera? It was. That used to be, what are people talking about <laughs> and in opera? It used to get and it was, and, you start, and people would start to go on that because of the outrage, because of that wonderful mix of outrage, and it's kind of like, an opera. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I was, that, that was kind of like, that, at, that sti- at that stage, I remember that was kind of like, that was my calling card. Do you know, I still bump into people, because this is nearly sort of 29 Absolutely, years later. Yeah. People come up and go, what? And they say, oh, no, but it's Jesus. a very, hence, <laughs> I still embedded in my brain, like, you know. But I love, what I loved back then was this, I, and, and, it's, and it's a weird thing, that, because the, the interesting thing about having done it for 30 years is that, I think you start to you just start to get a grip on where you want to go and what you might look at and how you might try and do things yeah. over that period of time. And at the time, just doing the store, all the other gigs were about you know I wanted to do well at the other gigs, but it was like building up for each th- those weekend gigs at the store. So all right, so similar to me in that sense of then you wanted to get off the circuit, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I loved I loved the circuit. I really loved it and. I, lo- I think there's a, a, one of the things I miss is that kind of gang of it. I miss the gang of it. Yeah. Um, and I really like the fact that the comedy store used to be a late night bar for comics. When you finished your gig on the yeah. Friday and Saturday, you know, you could come into town or, or you could go into the store and they'd be opening the gig at midnight. So you could come in late night, get a drink, hang out with comics. And that back bar was full of comics. Well, sort of... You weren't part of the uh, Bread Rose Club, were you? Uh, no, kind of, on occasion. On you occasion. were south. Yeah, no, but I used to hang out with, if I was doing the Red Rose Club, which obviously it finished to be part of Seven Sisters, you know, then uh, I was, there was a time when I was very sort of tight with Ivor and Jim Miller and all those people who... Um, who used to, and I remember that whole scene of yeah. just kind of like going out after the red. They used to, you know, used to do the gig and then yeah, go out. Used to go to Greek they used a Greek restaurant, yeah. 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 And so that was that, that doesn't happen. To, I bet you none of those kids do. But I bet they do. do. I bet they do. I bet they do. Because no, it's I, like Broadway Danny Rose. You remember that scene, Broadway Danny Rose, you know, the Woody Allen film yeah. where it starts and they start in that restaurant, the yeah. sandwich bar, and they're saying they named the sandwich after Danny Rose. And that's how they start the story. Yeah. And um, and actually, I bet people do. I bet there are places no, they go to. Do and do you remember, I want to ask you just one thing. Do you remember the Leicester Square Caf? There used to be a cafe in Leicester Square that used to serve alcohol if you bought a plate of sandwiches. I'm not... No, I think that was before. Do you know, because I remember going around there and there's a whole load like Paul Merton and and Ronnie Golden and all of that lot, the kind of senior wing of the comedy store at that stage. And all the comics used to dive in there. And there used to be this grumpiest waitress you've ever seen in your life. She was the grumpiest waitress. And one night Paul Merton went, just let's give her a massive tip. Let's just leave the biggest tip we can possibly... And we left 120 quid for wow. this waitress. This is 28 years ago. And she came out rushing out with, going, you've left this, you've left this. And we went, no, 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 it's for you. It's for you, thanks. And she just burst into tears wow. and then went inside. Next weekend, grumpy as hell, as oh. if it hadn't happened. But that was perfect. But, you know, but I, I, whenever, whenever I do the odd gig on the circuit, it's people just, like, you know, we wait and watch the other performers and stuff. That doesn't happen anymore. I used to love that. I loved the fact that you'd watch other performers. It was a matter of dignity. It was a matter of respect to other yeah. performers that you'd actually just sort of... And also, you're interested. You want to know what people yeah. are doing. You want to see what's happening. You want to see what people are doing. Um, don't happen anymore. 
Maybe that kind of happens in the in the in the comedy workshops. Do you know what I mean? Maybe they watch each other in the comedy workshops. Well, I just maybe think, that's where it takes place. No, but like, there's a big difference because when we started off, like you know, we just wanted to express ourselves and do comedy. We weren't going, and this will lead on to TV. Oh, certainly there was an element of what I loved the fact that if somebody said, "What do you do for a living?" I'd say I'm a, an alternative comic, and I go, "What's that?" And there was a feeling of being slightly underground about it, and I still feel that way. I still feel that actually what I want to do and the stuff that I like is the alternative stuff. That yeah. Actually, that's the stuff that interests me. But did you did you uh, go to acting school as well? Yeah? I went to drama school, which right. was great. It was so did in... you want to be an actor then, yeah? No. At the age of 16, I kind of pretty much said I want to be a stand-up. But I didn't know. At, the, at that time, my big influences were Dave Allen, Spike Milligan, The Goons, Hancock... You know, all that kind of stuff. And then Alexi Sale came in later on. Um, and Peter Cook. And those were the big... And so what I wanted to do... And I, I loved Woody Allen. And so I had this vision that I could live this bohemian life where I'd just go and talk about things on stage and people would, would yeah. come along. And whether it fitted into... It didn't fit into that vision of the comedians, you know, the TV series that was, yeah. you know, black bow ties and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it didn't quite fit into that... You know the Spalding Grey wing of but it, but you were like working class as well. So this was kind of well. It's a very weird thing because I was my my dad's a builder or was a builder. My dad was a builder. I still talk about him in the present on occasion. That's all right. <laughs> it's very funny. But it's, my dad was a, was a builder and he was self employed and he was very working class. And he was very determined that his children would be educated, um, and so going. I was the first person in my family to go to college and it was drama school my dad was kind of uh were they supportive yeah they were i mean my dad was just kind of i remember coming back after the first term at drama school and sitting down describing so excited oh we do this and then we do that and then we do this so so mark is that situation of because uh, it was like you and kevin day were quite pally weren't you, you kind we, of- well when i first started there was that there was me and Kevin and a guy called James McCarber who were very, very kind of tight together. And were you tight with James, yeah? Yeah, yeah. We used to run the, the Meccano Club, yeah. which was a lovely little Absolutely. Um, venue in Camden. And I think the interesting... For me, the circuit became something that was, was you know, I wanted to um, to play with it. You know, it was something to be played with. I was always kind of slightly... Uh, I always felt guilty that I didn't write enough. Do you know what I mean? That well, there it's wasn't easy enough to, if material. you've got your 20 minutes, you just do it. And it just did my head in that, that I didn't write enough and other people didn't write enough. And I said to... I remember I talked to Ivor and saying we should form a new material night and we formed this... The first new material night at the Concord, um, which was this kind of weird shape. It was like a triangular shape. Where was room, that? Uh, in Warren Street. Right. Near Warren Street. And we ran... It was like two quid to get in and... There was, a, there was like Hattie Harris, Jim Miller, me, Dave Cohen, and uh, Ivor, a couple of other people, and we would write five minutes of new material each each week. And sometimes it would work, and sometimes it would just be dreadful, and sometimes it was patchy. And what we did with the money we got, well, none of us took any money for it, so we saved up that money. woman from the uh, restaurant. <laughs> no, I wish we had. <laughs> we we used it. Uh, we we bought a new amp, and then we hired a coach to do a day trip down to Margate. And there's loads of us just did this big day trip down to Margate. I love the fact, though, that you could do new material. I really liked the new material see, notes. And then went on to do the, the I'm, cutting I'm, edge I'm, at the I'm store. I'm opposite that, you know. 
I, I like to put in new material in my shows. I, I think it's a false economy of doing new material because people are not expecting much. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. When we started it, the idea was it would be an impetus to write new material and that you would put it in your shows anyway. That's how you... My, my thing was you put it in your show anyway and that was all... You just... What you wanted to do, you wanted to do well at that five-minute thing and go, ha-ha, I have written five good minutes this week. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of impetus to write. Yeah. Um, and the same way that the cutting edge, when Kev and I sort of started that... Did just, you start that? Yeah, yeah me, Kevin Day, and uh, who was it? There's me, Kevin Day, and Bob Boyton. Oh, Bob. Who was just fantastic, who was just like this old Marxist. <laughs> I remember someone going, someone said, Yo, you'd like Bob Boyton. I said, well, how would you describe him? Sort of Marxist, communist, bisexual. <laughs> uh, angry. Because <laughs> you, were, you were a big fan of uh, Tony Allen as well, who's seen as the godfather of a time. Way back then, yes, I was a huge fan of Tony. I remember sort of falling in love with what he did when he just... I remember him improvising one night and just and it was just great. It was yeah. just his, And it was a genuine piece He's a lovely of man. wonder where he just went... This, he started talking about the human brain and how it approached problems and said, look, and got a chair out of the audience and jumped over the chair and said, that's how you jump over it. But that's useless. If you want to jump really high, run with it with your back. And then demonstrated the frisbee flop about how, you know, how illogical it must have looked or thought for go, let's run at it with our back, let's turn our back on the jump and but, actually when he did this thing because he was improvising it it was, it was one of those moments that just you know, those great moments yeah. that you are never going to re be replicated, I remember saying to him are you going to do that again? He said no, I'll die in the second one yeah. and it did <laughs> but see this is the weird thing because like, um, like, as I say, we all as young books started coming up, because comedy before then was perceived to be as an old man's game you know, you don't know any of your kind of life experiences till you hit your forties, yeah. and then all of us came in, and then the likes of Tony, who I've the utmost respect for, but wasn't it sad when you watched him on stage not doing very well, and there was a kind of sea change happening in comedy. There was a really weird thing because Tony was one of those people who was absolutely crucial to um, to stand up. He was a real absolute absolute sort of pivotal point in it, and I always kind of look upon him. Um, the world needs people who will step off the pavement. By which I mean, when you see a carnival happen, when you see uh, a kind of like a, a, a demonstration get excessive, when you see it get exciting, when you see football fans start to get uh, kind of like really kind of into it, there's a moment when people step off the pavement into the road. And it's a transgressive moment. It's a wonderfully transgressive moment. If you ever see like, a street party, if you've ever seen a demonstration turn into a street party, there is this moment where everyone's walking along properly and then a moment where someone steps off the pavement into the road and does this minor transgressive thing, but everyone needs them to do that mm. thing. Without one person stepping off the pavement, everyone stays on the road. And Tony was that person. He was the person who was the transgressor. He was the person who said, we can do this, and stepped off the road. And then the crowd just ran away and he got kind of caught up. And, yeah. and, but he was really, really pivotal to stand up being something, seen as something where you could play with ideas, you could really muck around with things. And I'm I loved totally that. with you on that. Weirdly, um, about five years ago, I hadn't seen Tony for a while, 
um, we were doing. I was asked to do this charity auction, and uh, and he was going to be my co-host. And I was going, I can't see Tony doing that. He was brilliant. But you know, he does. He he he's one of these people who's been around, and I like to sort of like think. Tony's one of those guys who's died on his ass so many times that he should know how to do it. Yeah. And he does, because those nights where he gets it right are yeah. just quite magic. And I, I, I've seen him do let, really stunning stuff. Let, let's quote him, actually, um, because people won't know who he is, but Tony's, uh, one of his opening lines was, uh, uh, Lenny Bruce ended his career uh, <laughs> doing heroin on the toilet. That's how I started. Yeah, man. yeah. He would st- yeah, yeah, he was... He was, <laughs> he was great. I... I I always remember him suddenly, somebody shouted out, talk about Northern Ireland, uh, or talk about Ireland uh, during his set. He said, what can you say? Troops out of Ireland. Troops out of Britain. Troops out of the army. Why on earth are they doing there? They're going to hurt themselves. And there was this wonderful tumbling yeah. logic absolutely. that was just absolutely beautiful. But back, back to the slight point is comedy changed then, didn't it? When we it, came in. It did change. I mean, you had people like Alexis Sayo, you had the kind of second wave and Tony, uh, and Alexis Sayo was the Peter Cook for our generation for, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. He kicked open every door and just said, look what you can do. And that was the impetus for me when, when it was getting hold of the CAC album and just going, wow, this is where I want to be. Um, that I mean, he was amazing. Then you had kind of like the Ben Elton and the, and people have this idea that you know there was all, it was all political back then, and all you had to say was Margaret Thatcher. But for every Ben Elton, there was Rick and Aid bunging fireworks down yeah. each other's pants, or Chris Lynham shoving it up his backside. Do you Stone know what I mean? Rose. God, it's a living. <laughs> but the thing is, you had that change, and then we came in. There was the Harry Enfield, and then us lot yeah. who came in trundling around. There was John Sparks and all of that, and then our gang kind of like charged in there. Um, and I love that feeling that we were putting down, throwing down a gauntlet to the old guard. I loved that feeling that we were chucking down a gauntlet. Did going, you feel, Come on! I didn't feel I was doing that. Did you feel you were yes, doing I that? Yes, I did. I felt that we were part of a cultural. That, that what we were doing was was countercultural. That actually, that what we were doing was rebellious and naughty and outside the norm. And I loved that. I loved the idea that you could come and see. The the the, th- the interesting thing about stand up is you. If you go down to the comedy store, late night back then, when it was in Leicester Square, a really working-class crowd. Right. You could do loads of really political material. You could, you know, you had to know what you were doing. You had to play around. Yeah. But you could do, and that was hugely exciting for me. I thought it was really thrilling. But and, and telly was... I always remember you saying, quoting in one of your shows that telly was a, a means to do what you do, yeah. which is live performance. Yeah. Which... Kind of yes, that was that was the idea that yeah you had to do some bits of telly yeah so people would come and see you yeah absolutely but it, and also there was peer you, there was peer rivalry do you know what I mean well, if they've done it I want to do it why can't I do it I want to do it you know so that well, we had that thing of like the Friday and the Saturday Night Live that was our only outlet for comedy you know and cabaret now. upstairs on Radio Four yeah. There was kind of like those little little moments that were just these little Radio 4 moments. And it's great. I mean, I love the fact that Radio 4 comedy has just really exploded. And is You've done really quite a lot with them, haven't you? I've done a bit with them, yeah. I, quite, I mean, I'm, no, I don't like that, that idea that you're a Radio 4 comic or a Channel 4 comic or a BBC 3 yeah. comic. Or, you know, and that's where you have your home. I don't like that idea. But I do do stuff with, Channel, with Radio 4. Um, and I like the... F- 
I love the fact that actually I can go along to them and just go, I'm doing this now, and go, would you like to do it? And if they say yes, then that's fine. And if they say no, that's also fine. But I'm not constantly going, I've got a new, I've got a new format, I've got a new idea, I've got a new... But do you get many kickbacks, though? Like, what? do you get many people that say, no, I don't want to do that? Um, occasionally, yeah. I mean, it's just... But now I kind of... Back in the early days of BBC... Three when that first started, when it started sort of going out, um, I went along and said, oh, "I've got this idea I want to do for a program," and this new controller would just come in. And they said, "Oh, great, yeah, 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 yeah." Um, very excited about it, and it was basically seeing how many laws, how many stupid laws you could break, because there were so many laws that came in under New Labour and Tony Blair that were just like so f- nuts, yeah. uh, and. I wanted to see how many you could break. Um, I put forward this stuff, and they basically, then suddenly it becomes apparent that another present, another performer is doing it, and it's kind of, and, and we had a little kind of, like, excuse me, I think my lawyer will be talking to your lawyer. But they didn't take your idea; they just happened to have one. They kind of did, right? They kind of did, and paid me some money. Just went, we're very sorry, really? have some money. You know, yes. I went up to my agent. Uh, about ten years ago, and said, "I've got this idea called Gogglebox about watching people." Watch Tell me this TV. is true. Tell I'm, me this. I'm is true. telling you, like I don't know if they took it from me <laughs> or what, but I did. And my agent went, "That's a stupid idea." No, yeah. I just thought it'd be great. But so you know, I'm not even bothering with that kind of stuff. But no, but, but so, there is a th- but there you do get kind of sli- uh, there is a bit where you just have to go look. Sometimes people think of the yeah, same yeah, ideas, and that's fine. Yeah, you know, and actually life's too short to kind of but like, get caught up on it. Like with your early stuff, like you know, it was obviously very thoughtful and stuff, but it wasn't overtly political at the start, was no, it? No, no, no. So where did that come from? I think I'd always wanted to make it political, uh, and so I was. But there's a really interesting thing. When you first start doing stand-up, you go, right, I'm going to be like Lenny Bruce and I'm going to be this. And you walk on stage and you go, oh, this is really hard. Um, I think there's a bit where you just learn that what you want to do is you want to make an audience, you want to control an audience. That's the first thing you have to Which really you are learn. brilliant at doing. You have to control an audience. You're you even to doing it to me now. how to control them. And you have to learn them to get them to laugh when you want them and when you can move them and when you can get them feeling one thing and moving. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's, and that's a real skill that you have to learn. And so the stuff that I did... It was sort of vaguely political, but it would often be sexual and would be often be sort of uh, about just seeing where uh, kind of you could cross the line of acceptability and then nip back and forward across it. Um, and actually it was during the, during the cutting edge thing that I just said, oh, we can talk about this, we can do whatever we want. And during the Gulf War, that was the first Gulf War, that was a time when you could write masses of stuff and actually stand-up became one of the few places where you could hear dissenting voices. Yeah. You didn't have the internet as it was, you didn't have, as it is now, you didn't have Twitter or anything like that. What you did have was stand-up. There was a lockdown on the press, there was a lockdown on media coverage, but actually one of the few places you could go and hear in dissenting voices outside a Steve Bell cartoon was a comedy club. And so The Edge, at one point, was just a massive critique of the Gulf War. Um, and that was, that was really, really exciting. I bet. And I found, that, I found that thrilling. I found it thrilling that you could go and you could do things. And I still find it thrilling that you can try and find new forms and new ways of doing things and new ways of, of looking at how you perform and how you relate to the audience. I'm obsessed with this notion of how you do it. 
of how you of trying to do new things, of trying to do new ways of of performing and new ways of of writing. And I think there's a really for me there's always been a struggle with the form, and because the, the interesting thing about stand up is it's solitary. And in a way, it came in from that Thatcherite economic model, you know, when, when all the left-wing theatre, when all the kind of collective work of theatre was being cut away, suddenly stand-up emerged. And it emerged yeah. in part because it was one of the few places you could find that dissenting and see stuff and hear stuff that wasn't on telly. In part, it was generational. In part, it was, um, it was also the fact that you had... Uh, a load of actors left over from these theatre companies were trying to find a living. And so what you found was suddenly this art form blows up that exists. All you need is a mic and a light and a bar. That's sometimes not a light. Sometimes not a light. <laughs> you know, and actually, sometimes not a bar. You know, but there's... there's that's all you need. So you need very small... There's a small outlay. The people doing it are motivated they produce their own work they don't need rehearsal they learn on the job they do their open spot they pay their dues if they do well they get paid work and if they do really well they get paid more you know so that's how it works and so you have this very thatcherite model but it regards the audience as a spectator but also equals as well there is yes yes i mean that's a mm, yes and no there is a thing of equals because it is about Experience sharing. about about sharing, yeah. but also communal experience, and about things that we identify with, and the situation and language and ideas we identify with. So yes, there is a, a communal thing there, but it's also as a stand-up, the you know audience intervention is traditionally hostile. It's traditionally a heckle. It's traditionally put down. It's traditionally something you can play with. You might enjoy it. You might have fun with it. You might get interesting things. You know, whenever you get good heckles, a night emerges. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah, and yeah. people will remember. Um, I did one gig that was uh, in Belfast, and actually there was an amazing heckle, and my response was kind of like blunt to the extreme. And... <laughs> Um, and actually, I did a gig there recently, and somebody came up to me and said, I've always wanted to say it was me who did this. And these but other people the were with us. Um, the heckle, do you want me to tell it? Yeah. Okay, the heckle, what well, I was talking about, you know the rule in Belfast, you have a go at everyone. That's the gig, yeah. right? So I'd got everyone. I was just moving on to the Pope endorsing contraception. Just a very light, uh, and just a couple of throwaway lines. And somebody shouted out, What about Mother Teresa? And it was this kind of like, you know, this is my icon, this is my badge, this is my cultural identity. You have stepped too far. I hold up Mother Teresa as this kind of shining example that defies your crass morality. And I replied, best fuck I've ever had. <laughs> and it was one of those nights where it was, you yeah. know, that... And then they laughed. But they all laughed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was great. And it was a real... And, um, and it was one of those nights where people came up to me, and people did, for ages, still come up and talk about it. Uh, but this woman came up and said, I just want to say it was me. <laughs> she was all right about that. Mother, Mother Teresa. I said, why did you shout that? In fact, I, she shouted at... Uh, she came, I met her at a pro-choice benefit in Belfast. Right. So the woman who shouted out, what about Mother Teresa, turns up at a pro-choice benefit in Belfast. And, 
she says to I said, what was that about? And she said, I'm really sorry. I was tripping off my head on acid. Oh, I said, <laughs> she said, yes. She said, but I, I couldn't say that I was taking drugs. I couldn't hold my hand up and say, I'm really sorry. That was a crap heckle. I was tripping. And I said, why couldn't you? She said... I lived in the Republican area. Do you think I'm going to hold my hands up to take... I said, OK, fair enough. We'll, we'll finish this part off by... What's your worth? Because you seem to work very hard. But like, do you get up in the morning and actually write? Or do you let things occur? Um, I'm very big on, on the work ethic of this stuff. You know, that actually you get out and you work. You keep office hours then, yeah? Um, almost. Oh, wow. Slightly longer office hours. I... I the idea that we've got this time that we can spend, that we can actually create things, is really exciting. And so what I do now is I, I design time. That's what I do. That sounded slightly Terry Pratchett, didn't it? It sounded... But, I was intrigued. But I kind of... What I do now is just go, right, this is when we'll do it. We'll do... I've got from here to then to create this new thing. And so everything go. That's that's when there's a period of time where I go. That's where I'm going to put all my creative energies into this. So this year, I've in the course of a year, I finished a hundred X show, wrote a book about it, created Cuckooed, which was the theatre show, toured that, went to Palestine to do book readings for Walking the Wall, oh, revived Bravo Figaro toured that in Australia and New Zealand, have come back and done Cuckooed, and we're just about to start on the new project. Right, you've been listening to part one of Mark Thomas with Under the Radar with me, Sean Hughes. Keep going to see live comedy. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 